This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Catherine Clive. And Catherine was so gracious to let me be in the pilot seat yeah, today. Yeah, usually I pilot, but like, you're on. <laughs> well, and, and you know, Catherine is the vice dean for social impact and a professor of management. So, of course, we defer to her. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm so deferred to. Yeah. All, all the time, darling. Uh, but... <laughs> Of course, we are here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We are replayed throughout the week. You can find us on demand on the SiriusXM app. And then, you know, Wharton Social, we get to podcast some of this stuff. Yeah. So we're excited that you can uh, get access to our content really anytime you want. Without further ado, let's move on to our first guests, Samantha and Lisa. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hi. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Are you out on the West Coast? I'm not. I'm actually in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ah, so oh, we could so have just. It's a had... civilized time. <laughs> it's a civilized <laughs> time for you, but you know, welcome to the show, Lisa. I know you're on the West Coast. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and it's uncivilized time. Uncivilized for me. time, but as uh, a mother of two, I believe that this is your mm-hmm. your private time. So <laughs> if we were going to get you, this is the time to have you. This is the time. Exactly. So you know, Sam. I don't know you. I mean, our listeners don't know either of you, but I don't know you, Sam. So help us understand your background and what you do. Sure. Um, So my background is in the design and strategy space. I specifically focus on social impact-driven companies. Um, And right now I really focus on that space between sort of everyone knows about the design thinking as a process and as this like big theoretical idea But what does it mean to actually take that and apply it on the ground level for companies, nonprofits trying to figure out, you know, how do I actually serve the people I'm trying to serve better? So I really help do that translation between here are the big theories and what does that mean to actually do it and how can we do it scrappy quickly, make sure it gets into our processes and something we can actually implement. Got it. And and Lisa, do you do the same thing? I do. Um, I do it by way of a couple of years at, at IDEO, the international uh, design and innovation firm, where I learned all those practices for the first time, and actually where I met you, Nick, when we were uh, together at IDEO.org. So I've been doing that for several years now and met Sam through that same world. She was actually my client at IDEO, is how we very first met. Got it. And so when it comes to design thinking or human-centered design, the whole point is that you put your the end user, the beneficiary, the client, whatever, at the center of what you're trying to accomplish. And that's through, you know, being empathic, you know, really putting yourself in the, the person's shoes and, and hoping that they can. And I think, Lisa, you actually specialize in UX, user experience, and how will they actually interact? How does that fit into their daily lives, their aspirations, et cetera? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Of course. So design, you know, a little short history of design thinking. Um, <laughs> IDEO started, you know, several decades ago, and there are other firms very similar to IDEO that have similar um, sort of historical background stories. They started as an industrial design firm making objects and things. And somewhere along the line um, in the 70s and 80s, somebody figured out that you could apply the same principles that you learn in design school to just about everything, um, to services, 
to experiences, and that's kind of how we ended up with design thinking as we know it today, because it's taking those same principles of iteration and prototyping and applying them to anything. And as Sam said, it can be applied to processes, um, internal business processes, as well as user experiences that are more outward-facing, really anything. It doesn't have to result in a physical artifact anymore. So uh, this is Catherine. I have a, a question. Maybe uh, I'll throw this to you, Sam, and it's very much on my mind. So as listeners know, Nick knows, um, I actually live in Washington, D.C., and I commute to Philly and spend the night in Philly a few nights a week and, you know, do do my do my work that way, you know, how computer can work anywhere. Um, <laughs> so I just spent the night at, the, uh, at a hotel actually on campus, and then they've done a renovation. And I was in the... Uh, the uh, breakfast room, the the lunch room, and it looks beautiful. Like it looks great. It's it's brighter, lighter. There they replaced the floors, so they took out carpet and put in hard floors. The drapes are gone. the The chairs and the tables are are new. Um, it looks beautiful. And then I heard I heard literally <laughs> two problems. Heard the din in there is like oh my god, this is so noisy mm-hmm. in here. Did nobody think about how to absorb sound? And uh, yeah. I'm friendly with some of the folks who work there, and uh, so a gentleman was just telling me, my feet are killing me. It is so difficult to work here um, because the floors are so hard. And I'm thinking, did nobody think about these things? Would design mm-hmm. thinking have been relevant here? Like how, if you had been working with uh, this hotel, would you, you know, might you have said, whoa, stop, let's think about all of these implications? How would that, tell our listeners and me, where and how design thinking might have made a difference. Yeah, that's it's such a great example. Um, I'll jump in, and Sam, I'm sure, has opinions too. My husband is an architect mm. for interior commercial spaces. and I think we should have hired him. <laughs> yeah, architecture, it, we've talked about this so many times in the kitchen at night. Architecture is the the one design discipline that has not quite embraced design thinking yet. And there are reasons for that. Um, but yes, to answer your question, uh, there's definitely, definitely opportunities for design thinking to have made that better, both from the perspective of the user, which is you, right? You're the person dining in that space, but also for the employee who has to work in that space every day. Um, so to some extent, both are users of mm-hmm. the space. Definitely. And yeah, and both need to have an optimized experience. And uh, because of the way architecture works uh, and the fact that it's not really as iterative as other types of design because you really only get one shot right. at it due to budgets, um, it's just more difficult to prototype, but it's not impossible. And a lot of firms do take that into account, space design. And so it's definitely a missed opportunity. And, and it's clear from the experience that you described that the people who are going to be using the space were not consulted. <laughs> and so, Sam, you know, can you help us understand, I mean, give your thoughts on Catherine's question, but also think about how you would have identified stakeholders in that example. Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things I always love to do, especially on a process like that, that like Lisa said, you can't prototype that well, is to actually use other buildings essentially as your prototype and being able to go and do that in-person research and see what's happening in other places. I know for myself, I'm really sensitive to loud restaurants, and I am the person who will walk in, hear the volume level, and immediately walk out and find a new place. Um, And so even just thinking about, you know, having your architects or your designers stationed 
at some places that inspire you and sort of waiting and see, you know, who walks in and walks out? Are people doing that? Can you catch them and ask them some quick questions about what's happening there? Um, being able to talk with staff members who work in spaces like what you're planning on building to understand, you know, what works well about this and what doesn't so that on your next iteration of, you know, the space you're trying to design, you're able to consider some of those facets. And Catherine, I'm curious now on this example a little bit, as the as the sort of client, the intended yep. client for this uh, establishment here on campus, how was the dining experience? Because I have had lunch there with you before yeah, yeah. in the old space. I didn't even know they renovated it. And yeah. we've had lunch there pretty <laughs> recently. Um, but that it, it's a wonky set. It had been a wonky setup. So actually just sort of thinking about getting your food, sitting down, has that changed no. at all? No. See, and that's also sort of a user experience example too. So for our listeners to paint the picture, there is a dining room, but then right. your, the food's sort of outside buffet right. style in the hall. And it's if, if if it's busy, it's a challenge to sort of navigate that line. Right. And I feel like, Lisa, probably you would have really tried to walk through what that whole start to end experience would be. Would that be correct? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I live my life looking for an, minor annoyances, not just for myself, mm-hmm. but for other people. Right. You're just attuned to it. It's just that's annoying. I would design it this way if I ever find myself in a position of designing a, a dining hall on a campus remember this moment you know and it's like cataloging all of those things because it's really just this lifelong when you decide to become a designer it's this lifelong cataloging and library building of minor annoyances that okay. you can draw from one day when you are in a similar design I, I don't know if that's going to make you a happier person or you know, an unhappier it person. It makes you an optimistic person because ah, it's a giant well of opportunity. Ah, that's good. That's good. It's uh, it's funny. We, I, you know, we, I'll just say one more thing on this. And then, you know, at some point we should talk about uh, how listeners can do use design thinking in their everyday lives. So I'm going to think of an example where I, I suspect I, you know, I, I incorporated without really knowing it uh, some design thinking into our renovation at home of our house. So lucky to do that. Bought a very, very old messed up house and did a major renovation. And one of the things that was really key for me is I would, when we were laying out the kitchen and thinking about how the kitchen would work, I, I thought, okay, I come down in the morning. What do I want to eat? Mm-hmm. Where do I stay? Mm-hmm. Where am I grabbing the coffee? Where, you know, where are the, where are the plates? What does this feel like? As opposed to what does this look like? Or yeah, it's fine. I imagined living in the space, and I think that mm-hmm. really and and you know my routine, um, yeah. and I think that's really you were design researching yourself. Yes, exactly. And I thought that you know I think that was that was helpful. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, as I, as I said, as the conversation goes on, at some point I want us to talk about okay, listeners, what do you you know like how do you take some of these principles into your own life? And you know, mm-hmm. not not that many people spend mm-hmm. you know get to redesign their kitchens, um, right? Right. right? Right, right. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. And we're talking with Sam Zucker and Lisa Baird around design thinking. And and we were just about to get to Lisa describing a little bit how you might be able to think about incorporating design principles into your everyday life. So, Lisa. Yeah, it's just a matter of, uh, for me, simplifying and being really thoughtful. Whenever I experience something anywhere, whether it's at a restaurant or hotel or anywhere else, The thoughtful experiences always really stand out to me. You can tell when someone else just put thought into how I might experience that moment. And so you do the same thing for yourself, right? It's like 
you know, I know that I always reach for this in that moment, or I know that I only use these three credit cards, so why bring, you know, a whole stack of cards with me in my wallet all the time and have this huge wallet? It's just sort of fine-tuning your life, and everybody does it. So in a sense, you know, everyone is a designer because you're designing your own life constantly, every little thing, where you put your shoes, where you hang your clothes. I, Lisa, I love the example, I think, when I was first exposed to design thinking around, all right, you walk in, it's winter time. you have your coat on, you might have a coat closet. Where does your coat often go? Right. Does it make it to the closet or does it get wrapped <laughs> over the chair? And I love right. that sort of, you know, that's a design element, you know, is the closet mm-hmm. poorly designed or its location or is it just about your own behavior? And mm-hmm. I, I just sort of love that example. Uh, totally. Like, I can't stand restaurant chairs that are, it's difficult to hang a purse on. Yes. <laughs> yes, right? I get that. Yeah. Where, where do you put your purse? You know, it's, it's usually hanging on the back of the chair. And if you can't hang it there, then you have to buy these little weird hooks that you hook on the table. It's odd. If you don't have one of those, your purse is on the floor. It's just like small details like that. You know, it's, it's thoughtfulness. Right. right. And so I do want to shift gears because we promised our listeners we were going to talk a little bit about higher ed and redesigning higher ed. And I think that goes, you know, our listeners probably, Catherine, can wrap their head around architecture and like that, you know, space and all of that. But rethinking higher ed, right. uh, the proposal. It's easier to clean out the wallet than rethink higher ed. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, Sam, tell us about how you all wrote this article about rethinking higher ed. Sure. So Lisa and I both are friendly with some folks at the Department of Education at the federal government level. Um, Just through various things. I was living in D.C. for a while. We did some work with them. I know Lisa knows them, I think, through IDEO. Right, Lisa? Right. Um, Yeah, and they really had this challenge that they were asking themselves of what does the future of higher education look like? Um, and decided they wanted to do a little mini design charrette of the four of us getting together and really spending three days diving into this question of what is the future of higher ed. Um, There's been all of this innovation and all of this redesign. We've been talking about this for almost a decade now. Um, And it hasn't, there's been some move of the needle, but it doesn't honestly look that different. And sort of looking at this question of what does that ecosystem have to look like to pull all of these different things together where is this going? What should we be supporting? And really thinking about how do we envision what the future looks like in order for us to know what is the change we want to be seeding? What do we want to be supporting? What do we want to be pushing as our own mission? So it's really interesting because for our listeners, I wanted to get you two on the air because I read the article and I had strong disagreement around around many of the principles. So, um, I want to dive in, Lisa, to maybe some of the key takeaways from the article. For our listeners who haven't actually read it already, what would you say are the key design principles and outcomes that you you discuss on the in the article? Sure. I think the number one takeaway from the whole thing is that the user and user-centered design or the human and human-centered design uh, is actually the hiring manager and not the student which felt really radical in the moment in those three days um, with our two colleagues from Department of Ed. Uh, It's, you know, so many years have passed where all different kinds of organizations and individual designers and 
nonprofits and everybody under the sun have been working on student-centered design, which is important, and there's plenty to do there. Um, But in terms of where education and workforce meet, I think the biggest takeaway for us was this aha moment of, oh, this is part of a longer value chain. And at the end of that value chain is the hiring manager, not a student or an administrator or a policymaker. And that was the biggest takeaway for us. It felt pretty radical in the moment. So let me just uh, make sure uh, I'm getting it and our listeners are getting it. So the notion that you're highlighting here is that uh, is fundamentally, or the implication, I guess, is fundamentally, hey, universities, hey, colleges, and we could talk about, are we talking junior colleges, all colleges, all universities, what are we talking about? Um, Your fundamental role is to train students for the workforce, and therefore you ought to be sure that you are serving the hiring manager, the people who actually make hiring decisions, and choose to hire people um, as they, you know, choose to hire your graduates or your students, people who are coming out of your college. Um, pay attention to them. Don't just pay attention to students and others. The hiring managers at all these businesses and organizations uh, are important stakeholders for your efforts. That That's a fundamental argument? Uh, not necessarily. Hmm, um, okay. Fundamental glad argument. Glad I asked. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you asked because I have a feeling this may have been one of the uh, – issues Nick had with the piece as well. But the premise of of our article was that in the innovation space, you know, all ye innovators out there that would like to work on this this problem, similar to the startup and VC world, right? Uh, it's just this is a problem that we've identified. But look, what's the, the problem? The problem is a failure of the labor market to clear. So it's almost 7 million uh, job openings that remain unfilled year after year and growing. Um, So we believe that the user in this user-centered design challenge is the hiring manager. So anyone interested in innovating around this um, should think about the hiring manager as uh, the primary user for whom to design, right? And whether or not uh, traditional institutions of higher education want to get involved in that innovation game is up to them. Um, and frankly, I don't really think that the, the Whartons of the world are, are particularly poised to participate in something like this. They may they may want to in some small ways, and in some similar institutions like um, Purdue and to some extent ASU and others are are I would say dabbling in it. But it's very difficult for traditional regionally accredited institutions to get into this game. And I don't necessarily, and I think Sam would agree, but I'll let her opine on our own, but I don't necessarily think that these same suppliers, so to speak, suppliers of talent, if that's the way we kind of want to think about this value chain, are, are actually going to be the same same players um, in the future as, as today, right? So I think there'll always be a role, but no, I'm not saying um, all, all ye <laughs> regionally accredited traditional institutions need to um, start Serving hiring managers. No, that's not the so. Premise. So, Lisa, it is. An, it's interesting to as a clarification because when you looked across the landscape, you said six or seven million job openings. Like, hey, we're not even. You know that that's a larger piece of the economy. That's a larger piece of everyone's livelihoods. And you know what is the role of education in that? And 
I think when I your your clarification here is helpful for me because when I think about my constituency as I I work within higher education, I very much believe that the institution, at least historically, has served faculty almost first and foremost. The creation mm-hmm. of knowledge and a research mm-hmm. base. Mm-hmm. Students have been you know like come learn from the experts. I think throughout the history of higher education, and I'm not a higher ed history expert by any means, but that's sort of my my purview on it. And mm-hmm. somehow over time, we've evolved to say higher ed is a funnel for talent into the labor market. Right. And um, so for me, when I think about the key stakeholders and, and what I'm hearing from you is – you said Purdue or Arizona State University, they have increased online presences where, you know, they're bringing education to a different audience in a different way, potentially to move into that, to, to solve for that pain point of the labor market, um, but also maybe their own bottom line. Who knows? But Sam, how mm-hmm. how are you characterizing this? I'm not sure that I'm making a lot of sense. So so help me out here. Yeah. So I, I think what was really um insightful for us at that moment was also rethinking, you know, what we believe a hiring manager is. Um, It's really interesting. We sort of threw that word on the board and we're talking about it. And it took me like a full 30 minutes before I realized like, oh, I used to be a hiring manager. Like that was me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that people don't associate with as their job. And they're also, you know, we talk about them as these sort of isolated people that are just happening to be hiring managers. And they're not. They're actually coming out of the system. Most of our hiring managers came out of higher ed. Um, You know, they come from our elite schools as well. They're people who have gone an entry-level job and then been promoted up to manager, and all of a sudden they have to hire someone. Um, And so I think our higher education space, I I don't think that all of the innovation and all the change is going to come from them. But I do think I would love to sort of push them to focus more on this idea that your students right now are students who need jobs, but your students down the line are going to be the people who are driving the economy and thinking about how this works um, and aren't necessarily prepared for how do you make that kind of decision in a way that's going to be impactful and meaningful. and so I, I'm really interested in sort of reframing and helping people understand how hiring managers work. I think especially in higher ed, it's particularly interesting because higher ed has one of the, I want to call it pretty untransparent methods of both hiring faculty and accepting students. Um, and so they're actually very outside of what that process is to hire folks um, in the room, actually. It was a really interesting conversation when we realized amongst three, amongst the four of us that I was really the only one who was hired in a normal sort of hiring practice. You know, the government hires in its own really separate, interesting way. Um, IDEO is sort of in its own special space where, you know, they're just getting flooded with applications every single day. They're one of the most sought-after jobs in the design field. Um, and so really, for me, I was sort of the one being able to say, like, look, that's not what most people's experience is as a hiring manager. It's usually really stressful. It's usually really opaque. It's usually really just sort of like following your gut and hoping it works, which isn't really how we want, you know, most of our economy to be running is figuring out who gets a job and who doesn't. 
so this is uh, it's really interesting to hear these observations. And I'm uh, I, like Nick. I've got to, uh, you know I may I may poke and we'll see whether we have time. But you know I would challenge some of the assumptions you're making. But be that as it may. I'm curious to know what your recommendations are and for and for whom. So, uh, you know, when you adopt this perspective, when you think about the hiring managers as you, you know, as you understand this role in the world, um, what are the practical implications for a uh, an institution, uh, you know, higher education? And and help us think, you know, if it's not a Wharton, if it's not a University of Pennsylvania, is it uh, is it a uh, you know a community college? Is, is it Emporia State University it, in Emporia, <laughs> Kansas? Right. Is it University of Maryland, where I was on the faculty for many years? What are we What are we talking about? So give us a give yeah. us a you know like this kind of university or, or you know institution of higher learning would do this differently, would think this differently, and here's what might result. Right. From your perspective, um, I'll take yeah. I'll take a stab at that. So. I think that it's well known that there are um, hundreds, um, if not thousands, of institutions that are in financial trouble, right, Um, traditional higher ed institutions. And um, these are not the top 100 on any sort of ranking list, right? These are mostly regionally known schools, and many of them are liberal arts colleges, and they're going to have to figure out a way to compete. And um, one working theory is that being able to prove economic stability is an outcome of this educational experience uh, as a competitive uh, sort of calling card for prospective students is one potential way that these institutions may choose to start competing in the future. So the acquisition of knowledge just isn't enough anymore for um, the consumer market at large. So that's one one working theory, and the call to action may be to that audience, to those institutions. Um, If you are interested in surviving, you may want to shift focus to a promise of economic stability of some kind. So um, shifting your your user experience, so to speak, to where it's not just student-centered but also hiring manager-centered, which incidentally takes us back to your hotel dining room experience, Catherine, you know, it's two-sided. There are two different users of this experience, right? Um, so if you're interested in surviving, you may want to figure out a way to please both sides of this um, value exchange in the, in the labor market and um, get students in the door that way. And there's several ways to do it, right? And, and income share agreements happen to be one way that helps align uh, student incentives with institution incentives to get that, that first job or that second job or whatever it may be. Oh, and this is interesting. And I, I mean, why I really enjoy this conversation, obviously, we sit within higher ed, but Catherine is a professor of management and an organizational psychologist. So this seems potentially right up her alley. And then actually, Lisa, not only are you a designer, but you also work for the University of California system, the University of Texas system. And so you actually do have good exposure, especially through the finances and business operations of of higher ed. So right. we actually, folks, we do have some good folks to be able to have this debate um, but we are, you know, quickly running out of time. So, Sam, you know, would you have any additional sort of action items that, you know, to Catherine's question? I, I think Lisa just recently talked about um, income-based repayment or not not in terms of federal loans, but. Right. Income sharing agreements income are, really, sharing, are, are really interesting. We've talked about them on um, 
on the show, it, it seems, uh, and, and uh, you know, we've talked about them in the past, kind of cutting edge, uh, interesting innovation in, in how people pay for uh, education. We can get into that detail. Maybe we'll get, we'll take that up in our last half hour of the show later on. Um, but it doesn't seem to me to speak to this question of the hiring manager. And so what, you know, if, if I'm, let me make, you know, let me be more explicit. I, um, you know, I run a, a, a community college or a state college. Uh, I'm the president. I think, oh, we need to pay more attention to the hiring manager. What am I doing differently? Am I, I mean, one implication I think of what you were saying is, hey, advertise uh, the extent to which going to Nova, going to, you know, whatever it is, uh, um, community college uh, moves people to employment, you know, just advertise that, promote that, make that clear to people that, yes, if you come to this university, you'll get a job on the, uh, you know, you'll get a better job on the way out. Um, mm-hmm. but, I'm, but I'm sure you're thinking about other implications of how, you know, how we teach, what we teach, how we select students, um, you know, how we connect with hiring managers. What are those implications? Yes. How we connect with hiring managers is key. I think if Sam and I had all the money in the world to tackle this challenge, um, or even just a paltry budget, we would totally take it and we would think about simple stuff. Like when Sam was that hiring manager looking for people to fill the role and it was really difficult for her because she had a regular functional job that she was trying to do as well. It's Is there an online portal where I can sort through candidates and I can see what they're able to do and what knowledge they possess without having to decipher credentials? You know, is there some way to verify that information, like it, just making the the day to day tasks of that hiring manager uh, more simplified and, and easier, making that user experience better. Yeah, and one of the things I will add is a lot of these tools that are already starting to exist. The market for helping people figure out how do you hire the right candidate is huge. Um, but I think one of the things that's really interesting to me coming out of this is. You know, are we asking when we say the right candidate, what does that actually mean in the software we're looking at? Is that a perpetuation of the system that already exists of, you know, we're just looking for folks that have gone to the top 100 schools. And so that's who we're keeping in this sort of right candidate. Or what does it mean to actually build systems? You know, if you are Nova, how do you partner with one of these organizations with one of these tech companies or build your own to sort of think about, um, you know, what does it mean to show what our students know uh, and be able to compete in the job marketplace in that way? Well, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this whole conversation. Um, we could go on for quite a while. I know that. And Catherine had some good tidbits from Peter Capelli, um, who is a faculty member here, also focused on human resources and uh, the labor market. Um, but we're, we can get to that in our open segment. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Sam Zucker and Lisa Baird, who are rethinking education. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 